This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that, unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Welcome back, everybody. Now, today's episode has been a long time coming for me. I've followed Eric Tomsmeyer's work since I first started learning about permaculture, and I found his first book, Paradise Lot, about his work in transforming a tiny suburban dirt patch into a perennial food oasis at his home in Massachusetts. Now, since then, Eric has written many other titles that have kept pace in an eerie way with my own work and focus over the years. Perennial vegetables was great fodder for my learning in Guatemala with indigenous plant cultures and companion plants for coffee and avocado. The carbon farming solution helped to turn my attention to the potential of regenerative agriculture at scale, and his contributions to Project Drawdown helped me to put agriculture in perspective with the rest of the essential steps to addressing the climate crisis around the world. Now in this session, because of its relevance to the work that I'm doing with climate farmers, I decided to focus on the conclusion of the Carbon Farming Solution Part 5, which outlines the implementation of regenerative, mainly perennial-based agriculture. We'll explore Eric's three-point plan for scaling up carbon farming, his ideas for ways to support farmers and organizations in the transition, effective financing, removing policy barriers, as well as strategic next steps. We also cover some of his work with Project Drawdown in looking at the global picture and where regenerative agriculture stacks up in the priority list that they've created to reverse the effects of climate change. Now there's so much more that I could say in an introduction to Eric and his work, but instead I'll put all the links to learn more about him and the projects that he's involved with in the show notes for this episode, and I'll jump right into the first question to start this discussion off. The book outlines very thorough strategies for many of the different farming methods and how they can be adapted to sequester massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere, but just as importantly that carbon can be cycled in a way that rebuilds topsoil that we've lost in order to improve much of, um, or go beyond just the improvement of atmospheric conditions uh, and you know, work to reestablish healthy hydrological cycles and many other functions. So instead of going through all the perennial cropping and other agricultural practices that you recommend in the earlier chapters, I want to focus on the content of that last chapter focusing on a roadmap to implementation. So perhaps we could start by going over the three-step plan to scale up carbon farming. Well, here's what I think is first um, is first we want to distinguish between the sort of phase one uh, practices that are ready to scale now or that are already scaling, that we know everything we need to know how to do it. We've measured their impacts. Um, they are already being adopted on their own things like uh, 
better grazing, for example, or cover cropping and so on. Practices that have a real um, um, a track record of success. Great. So that's phase one is sort of go all in on those to me. Uh, we want those to, to take off. Um, um, and there's a million things we can do around those and we can talk more about that. But then there's also this phase two practices that are um, maybe a decade or two out from being ready to be widely adopted. And that might be because uh, they're being adapted to a different climate. It might be because um, they're sort of still new enough that they just haven't got traction and momentum for, for, for being picked up. Uh, or it might be because there's still things that haven't been figured out like perennial grains kind of don't really exist yet. It's a minor problem for their adoption. So uh, we know what to do with them. And when they are ready, we already have a system that can take grains and know what to do with them in a really big way. It doesn't require any changes to processing or transport or diet or livestock feed or anything, um, or even changes to equipment for harvesting. We just have to do the breeding part. Um, so, uh, so that would be one example of a phase two um, system. Another would be uh, uh, the mechanized alley cropping agroforestry systems, which are being done on a, you know, on a scale in Europe, something like maybe 1% of, of farmland there or something, but hardly huge, you know, um, uh, that have very, very powerful carbon impacts but um, uh, there's a number of things to be worked out before that they're ready to sort of take over all cropland. Um, so that's the first distinction I try and make is between what's kind of ready. And it's not that we don't need to throw a bunch of money at the research and development and at the, the demonstration centers and farmer training and all that on these kind of like farther out projects. Um, but meanwhile, we can be going ahead much more aggressively. If every farmer isn't using cover crops yet, well, certainly that's a very achievable and doable goal. And, and there's a bunch of different um, approaches to doing that, which we lay out in this chapter, sort of what's the private sector part and what's the finance part and what's the university part and government part and so on. So you can sort of steer me where you want uh, on that. Well, so in implementing these things on a larger scale, like you were talking about, what are the best support mechanisms for farmers to make their transition? Because this is something that I'm very directly related uh, to yeah. in, my, in my work. I'm working with our groups of farmers through Climate Farmers and coming up with curriculum and uh, coaching and support services remotely to help them in their transition process. But it's definitely not a one size fits all. What are the things that you've identified that can really assist in this process? Sure. Um, uh, well, first I'll say, I don't really believe in like any one answer, like you were just saying to doing this. I feel like we need a whole constellation of different efforts because different farms are gonna need different things. Um, and we want that sort of redundant backup system to really make it go. If we want to transform agriculture at the, speed that is required it's gonna require effort and coordination and, and budget and all that so um one of the ways to think about it is to think about what to ask what are the challenges that farmers face in order to adopt a certain practice 
Um, and I'll say, uh, as, 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 as I say in the book, and as I'm sure you know very well, none of the practices that people are talking about right now, at least in terms of carbon sequestration, none of them were developed because of their impact on climate. They were developed because they make the farm more resilient, because they make the farm more profitable, or in a few cases, for some kind of ecosystem services of some kind, like water quality impacts or things like that. But the great majority of these practices were developed because they are good for the farmer. So we might ask why are farmers not adopting them more rapidly? Um, one of the reasons at the sort of policy level is broadly speaking, we're still funding all the wrong practices <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, so that's a lot of uh, momentum and weight to try and shift. I think globally, there's a study a few years ago that global agricultural subsidies are around $700 billion a year. And about 1% of those were for environmentally friendly practices of one kind or another. So for, there's a piece of like remove the subsidizing of the bad and that frees up some budget for the good um, to, 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 to talk about it in a very basic kind of way. Um, so what are the reasons that farmers have trouble adopting things? Well, one is they may not find out about them because nobody's encouraging them to learn about them um, or because there are policies that actually make it impossible to do those things or illegal to do those things in many cases. Um, two is um, uh, they um, may not, it may require money in order to adopt those practices. Some are free, which is fantastic. There are quite a number of practices that don't cost farmers anything, but the great majority of these practices cost money. There's at least an initial investment. And in some cases there's an annual ongoing cost like cover cropping every year, you have to buy those seeds and so on. Um, uh, then there's the risk to farms of, um, all the things that can go wrong, especially in those kind of years of working the bugs out of adopting a new practice, which is sometimes literally working the bugs out, the pest insects out. Um, uh, even with something as that we know so much about as converting to organic, let's say, there's still regularly this two to three year period where there's gonna be a dip in profitability and productivity on that farm. Um, and the farther you go afield into newer practices that are less familiar in your area, the more that's going to be a challenge. Um, uh, and I I'll add that in, in most cases, not always, but broadly speaking, the more powerful the practice in terms of the impact per acre or impact per hectare, uh, the more it costs and the more years until it pays off. There are, again, exceptions, but generally speaking, that's the rule, especially when trees are involved. Um, and which brings us to another big area of challenge for farmers, which is tenure. When you're renting land, why would you install terraces or, or put in a water harvesting system or plant a bunch of trees or um, any number of these other kinds of things you might do that take time to pay off. Cover crops are nice because they're relatively quick. And that's something that, that you will see an impact um, uh, relatively quickly. And that can make more sense on, on, um, on rented land. Uh, so there are a whole suite of challenges that people are facing. Um, 
that are keeping them from being able to adopt these practices. But I, I do think in many ways, the mindset is one of the biggest ones. And if your university and your um, you know seed suppliers and fertilizer suppliers or whatever have been telling you and your government perhaps have been telling you for years, you know, cut down every tree, plow it up from fence row to fence row. Um, here's heavily subsidized fertilizer, go crazy with it, things like that. Um, um, keep your animals separate from your crops, whatever else that, um, you know, that um, you need to hear some other voices. Um, and, uh, and well, I do think the regenerative ag movement has been doing a really great job of getting some other ideas out there. It's still a fairly slow um, process. It's not at all on track for that sort of uh, well enough. So you were talking about this multifaceted look at the transition needed to happen and how there are a lot of hurdles in the way. And one of those major ones and it's fairly significant across all spectrums is the need for financing, that it needs to happen in an increasingly short time window that we're working with, climactically speaking. Where is this money going to come from and where can it be effectively directed? Because there's a lot of debate over that as well. Well, that you're really... Uh... You're, you're, you're demonstrating that you are aware of the issues in here because let's start with the where does it get directed first. Um, most of the kind of bigger avenues for finance are accustomed to working with, uh, you know, to providing that to places that can handle tens of millions of dollars at a time. And rare are the farms who can do that, although they exist, there are very few of them. Um, so I see one of the big challenges being um, uh, aggregating farmers to be able to receive these kinds of funds in the first place, just to be able to get the financing in the first place. And we do have models for that, like producer cooperatives are very commonly used in agriculture uh, already for, you know, grains or whatever. So there's sort of a, a precedent in that regard. And there are also various other kinds of producer associations. You know, here in the U.S., we have the Cranberry Growers Association and this and that. So there are various kinds of groups already of farmers in place. Um, but they haven't mostly been accustomed to funneling those kinds of funds. And we see that both in uh, the global north, but also very much in the global south where it's even a bigger deal because your average farm is just two hectares so to be able to access those kinds of funds in some cases you need to have ten thousand hectares worth of land and either any to be able to get in the door at all in the first place and by the time you sort of administer that enough to get it out you might be getting a dollar a farm per year and that's not really worth depending on on um on the, the, the type of, of finance. That's not so true for government payment for environmental services, which is one approach I really like, but certainly isn't, isn't and shouldn't be the only approach to doing these things. So for, um, for um, various kinds of lending, that is a really key um, component. Another interesting way people have gone about this, and I know you know all this stuff and throw, throw whatever stories in, in here that you like, is the, the buyer financing has, been surprisingly effective and interesting so far, where some of the big companies that are per that purchase from farmers, purchase products from farmers, um, 
would really like to be able to buy the most regenerative or more regenerative stuff um, and are um, uh, providing funds, whether it's loans or, or outright payments um, to farmers to transition to the practices that those buyers would like to have. I'm thinking about companies like Danone in France who have pledged quite a bit of money to um, for transition there or here in the US, Annie's Mac and Cheese, which is part of um, General Mills has pledged quite a bit of money for um, transition to organic wheat production in North Dakota because they weren't able to get enough organic wheat to meet their demand. So I am seeing more of that than I thought. And that's interesting because they do already have a relationship with the farmers. So that sort of checks that box off and they have money to work with and that's great um and um they're so far they're not asking huge changes uh, from those farms they're not sort of asking for radical overhauls of practices they're looking at these kind of the lower hanging fruit um, which i think is a very strategic plan although we don't want to ignore those higher carbon practices because we don't get where we want to be in the carbon budget without them but it in every way makes sense to start with the stuff that's easy for people to do so um um that's uh those are my uh those are my thoughts there yeah what else yeah there's good stuff there's so much that we could unpack about many of those things including holding larger industries accountable for actually seeing all these steps through and not just stopping once they've made their marketing point so to speak and um, the way that the buyer side has really helped to drive a lot of these newer practices and validate it from from an economic standpoint i know some of the growers that we work with who have become established and have uh, good marketing have switched over to direct marketing because there's enough people now who value this and are willing to pay more for it and sometimes even create experiences around the reconnection with their food more than just the purchase and consumption of it. And there are a lot of really inspiring and cool examples of this. Um, but there are also a lot of invisible roadblocks in the ways of like political or national uh, restrictions, incentives, like we kind of touched on before, and also opposition from large industrial giants who sometimes will greenwash what it is they're actually doing, whereas their relationships with the farms and what they're incentivizing on the grower side does not actually square with that. So I'm wondering, where do you see hope in overcoming these issues? Um, well, it's generous of you to think that I see hope, but I certainly see hopeful things here and there anyway, for sure. Yeah. Um, Well, we certainly didn't, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I got started in this in this kind of agriculture before I was aware in any way of the climate part, right? And back when we called it sustainable agriculture, that um, we never thought that those any of those big companies were going to be interested at all. Um, so it is surprising and pleasing to see them talking about things like cover cropping and reducing tillage and integrating livestock and all that, that is really new to see those places doing that. So that is, that itself is hopeful. Um, my um, personal uh, focus is often more on the 
farmers who are going into the higher carbon end of things, the sort of more aggressively high carbon end of things. And what I'm seeing there in agroforestry, for example, which is where a lot of my work is, is sitting right now, um, just a explosive wave of farmers picking up agroforestry practices similar in many ways to what organic looked like in the 1990s just stuff that's what they all want to do all of a sudden and that is very very encouraging because really it falls to the farmers ultimately to sequester that carbon the rest of us do what we can to help them do it but um so the fact that there are a number of them who are interested is is very exciting um and i am seeing some national governments really putting uh some emphasis on these things. France, for example, has made a, a pretty big commitment to um, stepping up on uh, alley cropping. For example, France is really currently the world leader in temperate climate uh, alley cropping. China held that role in the 80s and that sort of fell away. So um, they've got some pretty robust targets, not remotely enough to what we for what we need in terms of climate, but but very ambitious targets in terms of growing the amount of, of, um, of alley cropping that's happening there. That is really exciting to see. Um, and um, uh, I think the EU is looking pretty strong on nutrient management, which is kind of the least sexy of any of these practices, but the nitrous oxide from fertilizers, not to mention the carbon dioxide that is emitted from the manufacturing of synthetic fertilizers, is a really, really big contributor to climate change. And if we're able to, um, and it's something that can be, that an action this year makes an impact this year. Carbon sequestering may take decades to really kick in from today's actions and have to be maintained that whole time, but reducing nitrous oxide is right now. Um, so I am seeing a lot of enthusiasm about that in the US and Canada as well. Not, not enough and not with enough uh, teeth in the regulations maybe, but I'm seeing a lot of interest in that. Um, and it is something that saves farmers money to just stop overusing synthetic fertilizer must be the most basic step you can take, take is to, to stop wasting money on something you're over applying that isn't even helping your crops at all that's so that's good i think strategically that is where that one belongs is right in there with the cover crops and and uh and you know if you, you can reduce tillage and stuff i think that's um that's good is what i what i like to see coming in after that and we are seeing a lot more interest on that um um here in the states and in europe through like the um the ag forward initiative and stuff is the bringing of trees and perennials around the edges of the farm. So the windbreaks, the riparian buffers and plantings, getting those trees around the edges of the fields is a good step. After that comes coming actually into the field along the contours, if you're in a slope with, with strips of things. Here in the US, there's been quite a lot of uptake of um, perennial grass strips on contour within fields so it's not the most dramatic exciting thing but it's sort of an entering wedge to actually get perennials into the field that's a great step um 
And then from there, the, that kind of final step is to bring those rows of trees into the fields until such time as perennial greens or perennial whatever else are available. That's the most you can perennialize the field. And that's the most carbon you can get in a crop field. Um, uh, to my to my knowledge and with grazing similarly, you know, you start with the uh, whatever optimizing your stocking rates and whatever and you move into more and more sophisticated managed grazing systems. Um, but adding trees to those systems greatly increases carbon sequestration um, and in some cases can reduce um, emissions as well. Um, when the when ruminants consume the leaves of many kinds of trees, uh, it reduces methane because the tannins uh, somehow affect the, the 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 microbes in the room in there. So um, that's a pretty exciting thing as well. And actually, we're seeing in the sort of livestock feed world a lot of interest in these methane reducing feeds as well, um, which. Um, Again, maybe sort of like a Band-Aid on a broken system to some degree, but also that methane is a problem. And if we can find ways of doing it that don't harm the animals, because some of the things that have been proposed are actually harmful to the animals. Uh, and if we can prove that doing so has a long-term effect and not just you know during a couple of weeks of a study, which I don't think has really quite been shown yet. Um, uh, that that could be a big deal, and I and I think what we're going to see a lot of uptake on that. I've certainly seen a lot of interest in like the seaweeds and things like that as as feed additives, which is again something farmers have been doing for thousands of years. So a lot of these aren't actually new practices; they're just um, we're realizing again what a good idea it is to graze livestock in your orchard or feed some seaweed to your livestock or have your livestock have a diverse diet of fresh forages, um, which also reduces methane from emissions if they're eating nice tender forage. And if it has some, there are certain kinds of um, um, methane reducing um, uh, forages as well, like some of the plantains and things like that. So we're just, this is all just sort of percolating up, but I, I do see a lot of interest there. And it's pretty easy for a farmer to add another kind of seed or two to their seed mix when they're redoing a field or something, right? Or frost seeding something in. Um, relatively easy to do that compared to other things. So um, um, those are some of the hopeful things that I see. And I also see, which we really, we didn't see 10 years ago, real consumer interest in these um, climate-friendly production practices and climate-friendly types of foods, although there's a lot of confusion out there um, about that. Um, so I think we are going to increasingly see demand um, for things that are produced in a climate-friendly way and some, um, some premium prices or access to premium markets, which is another way to finance farmer's transition is just to offer them a place to sell things, uh, even if it doesn't have a better price and I'm just getting in the door to a market at all is enough, um, but certainly a, a better price. And there's people looking at different kinds of certification systems around that, that all of which seem to have their, their limitations and stuff, but that's another possible approach is these um, um, 
uh, like Kiss the Ground put out a buyer guide a couple of years ago that was really interesting and talked about a whole range of different kinds of misinformation. And there's a lot that isn't known. Um, so how can you have anything but misinformation about things that nobody really understands yet? Um, so there's a lot of nuance that isn't always communicated easily. And I think um, so there's a lot of confusing messages, I think, going around about that kind of stuff right now. Yeah, it's kind of par for the course as this is still new and emerging all the time. And as new information comes out, people gravitate to a simplistic solution based on, you know, some scientific study or whatnot. And it's very easy to lose sight of the whole, which really is the mindset change that needs to happen for these things to stick. Otherwise, we're just going to find the newest solution that is shinier and a little bit better than the previous one and pursue that to such a level that it becomes destructive as well, which is very easy to do on a planet of 8 billion people. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now I've always kind of come back to your work for your focus on perennial plants and the massive amount of potential of not only nutrition and variety of diet, but the way that it makes land management that much simpler, despite it being somewhat more complex. I know that's perhaps paradoxical in, descri in description, but by simply not having to work the soil every season, uh, there opens up a lot of new management possibilities and a very different, uh, yeah, diet tradition of working the land, reconnecting with cultures that used to cultivate these foods, and of course, all of the ecological benefits as well. Where do you see the real full potential of this being rolled out or is there still enough pushback from large grain producers and the fact that so many of us have grown up and only known these grain-based diets that it's just hard to imagine anything different? Okay, well, that's a great question. Um, in many areas of the tropics, perennial agriculture has already realized its potential. Generally on a smallholder kind of a scale or, um, uh, uh, you know, um, a diverse mosaic of smaller farmers kind of scale, but there are places where breadfruit and bananas and so on are really actually staple foods for people in a big way right now. Um, but uh, the sort of annual agriculture model has been imposed as a result of policy and economic things and stuff on many of those places. So there's less in some ways than there was, um, but there's still quite a bit there. Um, in terms of uh, places doing really like mechanized agriculture and stuff, well, actually there's an interesting model coming out of Brazil. This centropic agriculture is a multi-strata agroforestry practice that has sort of begun to crack the code on mechanized establishment and ergonomic efficiency without losing the diversity in the ecosystem services and stuff. So I think that's a really interesting development. Let's see. Uh, in in the in the temperate world and in the mechanized scale world, um, the perennial grains that are starting to come out of the gate, like Kernza, which still have pretty low yields but have a high enough dollars per pound ratio or euros per kilo ratio, whatever, that they can still be profitable. Um, are very interesting to me. And um, 
And I think uh, we're still really in the very tiny early micro stages of that, but I do think the world is poised for that to take off when those come. And in particular, I think the application for those, um, those kinds of, let's say perennial grains, for example, uh, or even the agroforestry systems or other kinds of perennial crops uh, is on the marginal land because only about a third of the world's cropland is prime, like flat and fertile, which are the most forgiving lands if you want to be plowing a lot, that's where you want to do it. Uh, um, that leaves two thirds that is less fertile or steep or otherwise, or even relatively gently sloping can still be bad um, for erosion or just otherwise vulnerable to degradation. So those seem strategically like the place to work. Okay, we do the best annuals we can on the flat fertile places, right? Do rotation and cover crops and blah, blah, blah. Great, and some perennial stuff around the edges of the fields and whatnot. Um, but it's in this, um, less ideal, less than perfect, great majority of the world's farmland that I think these other things make, make sense, partly because the yields of annual crops have never been as good on those lands as they have been on the prime land anyway. So we're not competing against, you know, the perfect, beautiful bottom land for yields or anything. Um, so I've been seeing some, um, well, let's see. Okay, what have I? What am I seeing? That's just, just to talk about about um, Europe in particular, uh, Europe in general, and France in particular. A, a relatively recent study found that about fifteen percent of European farmland is in agroforestry now, um, but the great majority of that is silvopasture, mostly the daesa, which is a fairly extensive, you know, low maintenance, low yielding dry and fertile kind of system that I think could be spiced up in certain ways to probably make it more productive. Um, um, what uh, here in the US, there's a, there's some interesting developments. There's been quite a bit of interest and, and investment in um, developing hazelnuts and chestnuts as new specialty crops, but ultimately with the eye towards them becoming new staple crops down, down the road. So there was a, I think there's maybe $5 million has been thrown at developing hazelnuts as a new crop for the Midwest. And there's similar kind of stuff starting to happen around chestnuts. When you, if you were to compare that to work being done on corn, it would be a very small amount of money, but compared to what we've seen here before, it's a big deal anyway. Um, and um, and there is quite a bit of uh, of, of interest in silvopasture, um, both in, in Europe and the US. I think Europe gets more points for um, uh, looking at those leaves of trees as fodder for the livestock. I'm seeing that happening pretty in a pretty exciting way. And I think Europe also in general in agroforestry is doing better thinking about the trees as timber. I think because there are just less forests in Europe that you have to grow. If you want good timber, you have to grow it. Whereas here it's there, you could just go cut down more trees in the, in the wild. Um, one place that we've seen some really exceptional uptake of uh, silvopasture is in Colombia and Central America. 
there's a group called CIPAV there who developed this intensive silver pasture model where, where the plant these um, uh, fodder shrubs, nitrogen fixing fodder shrubs, very, very close together, like one foot apart on center through the whole paddock um, and plant them with uh, very productive pasture grasses. And then they bring the ruminants in and they browse and graze all that down and then they move on. So it's sort of like 12 foot tall clover, I guess, in a way, really, right? It's the same basic kind of thing. But the carbon sequestration is greatly increased. Um, the high tannins reduce the, um, the methane emissions quite a bit. They're often using brachiaria grasses as the grass, which um, reduce nitrous oxide emissions from urine from livestock. Uh, and then they're, they're often planting um, rows of trees, uh, timber trees and stuff in the fields, and also sometimes various other kinds of useful palms and fruit trees and trees that make food for the livestock. So they're getting these incredibly high carbon sequestration rates. I think it's really the, the most efficient, the most carbon friendly way to raise beef and dairy that there is. Um, and the footprint in terms of like how many hectares total it takes to raise a whatever certain number of kilos of milk or meat is the same as what feedlots take to grow all the grain for them. The argument against managed grazing has been great. You're sequestering carbon, but you take two or three times more land than a feedlot and the corn and grains that are associated with it. So, okay, you're sequestering carbon, but you're taking up more land, which means you're helping to drive deforestation or prevent reforestation. Here's a practice where you really can't bring that criticism to it in any way. Um, and it's taking off like wildfire through Latin America. And there are, you can't do it quite like that in the temperate world because those species won't grow <laughs> here. But uh, there are all kinds of things, trees and shrubs that do similar things here. And there are people now doing trials on this um, that uh, it's very exciting to see that starting to take. And I think that could be a big, uh, that could be a big deal here as well. Um, but it's in terms of movements where these very perennial systems have been taking off that some um, that's quite an exciting one to me. Um, we, we do have uh, perennial rice. The first perennial rice variety is doing great. I think it's in the fifth year and continuing to pr produce competitively with annuals. That's again, not a super help in Spain maybe, but rice is certainly a big crop around the world. Um, and there are some you know, sorghums that have been released in Ethiopia recently that look pretty good. Um, so we're really looking for most of my life, we talked about when perennial grains exist. And now we're in the period where those first perennial grains are out there. Um, and um, that's that's not that there haven't maybe been some historic perennial grains here and there, don't get me wrong, but it, it, at a functional level, they're, they're, they're mostly his, of historic interest only rather than things people are at. Like a lot of Australia had perennial grains that were cultivated of various kinds. And certain parts of the Western US had a few, there were a few in um, temperate South America, but basically those are more or less gone and the varieties have been lost and stuff. So um, that's an exciting uh, an exciting time. There is also a lot of interest here um, in the US at least on um, converting cropland to grazing land. 
And that is complex because on the one hand, it's this marginal land that isn't great for annuals anyway, right? That's highly erodible or whatever. So it shouldn't be in annuals, but there is sometimes an approach to that that says, this is the only thing you can do with that, which is not true. There are other things you can do with that land. You could do agroforestry or whatever, an orchard or something, you know, um, or biomass crops or perennial industrial feedstocks or something. Um, but also the challenge there is that uh, even a well-managed, you know, beef operation or whatever, uh, grazing operation is going to make about 10% as much food as if that land was still growing corn and soybeans or something. So if we convert a whole lot of that land to that, there's a problem with food supply at the global level. For the individual farmer, that doesn't matter at all, and they need to do what's right for them. Um, and for their land and for their soil and stuff. But if everybody were to do that with all of the grain land of the world, there would be a very big problem with the amount of food available. Um, that would be a big problem. So um, I, I, uh, I see why people do it. And I think that for many individual pieces of land, that's a really great approach that makes really good sense. Um, but we do need to figure out how to raise plant-based foods on those lands that are less than perfect um um and i and i would like to see and i think people have been switching to these kinds of you know fancy grazing amp grazing and stuff there um because it makes good economic sense for them and because they're not being presented with other things they might do there instead um and i'm not opposed in any way to that kind of grazing i think it's lovely and elegant and sophisticated and fascinating and stuff um but um uh, we can't do that with all of that cropland or we have a problem <laughs> as well. So um, that's where the kind of nuance gets into this. Like, is grass-fed beef always better than, I don't know, is it, is it, if you're eating beef, it should be that kind of beef probably. That don't come across well on Twitter or whatever, I guess, um, when you, when you um, uh, try and communicate about this stuff. Um, sort of the like, eat less meat and have it be raised in the best way possible seems as close to that as I've seen. But even that is, well, that really depends on some things or even within fisheries, there's the same aquaculture, there's the same kinds of challenges as well. It really depends on what kind and how it's raised and what it's replacing, if anything, and all of that. Um, scallop, scallops and oysters look pretty good shrimp looks really terrible um so uh it's uh there's there's um there's a lot to be to be said there yeah all right what else well what i else? love this acknowledgement of the nuance that is necessary in deciding on what management practice what crop is correct for every different scenario and this is something that i've been involved with for a long time like in the last five years i've helped to work with uh, indigenous growers in the highlands of Guatemala, where I used to live, to integrate Great. more overstory crops and uh, soil building perennials in with their, uh, with the coffee growing systems. We've also helped to revive like traditional yeah. avocado varieties that don't have as much value on the market, but are honestly much higher quality than most of the ones that you would get at a market. Um, right. All the way to yeah. like, even you were talking about perennial uh, rice and I live you'd be surprised in two directions I live less than two hours away from traditional rice growing areas here in Spain 
right. and uh, there's unique kind of pockets where those things are, are possible. Um, but also seeing, you know, the terraced fields and as you start to go into the mountains that have been worked since Roman times. And I'm actually involved with uh, helping to teach a centropic agroforestry or profitable agroforestry course coming up here in the spring. And knowing that we can't just take an, a, a method that was developed in Brazil and a wholesale copy and paste it over here into the Mediterranean, that there needs yeah. to be adaptations not only in the different species that we would cultivate, but also understanding the difference in rainfall, soil types and everything. And so it really does just come down to this, like whatever it is that you're trying, you need to have a fundamental understanding of your context, your business model, the market you're selling to, the labor pool that you're working with, and so many other factors. And so making recommendations in a prescriptive way is always going to end in failure uh, without a, a nuanced understanding. And that's something that I've always kind of got from your work and from, from the books that you've put out. And so I guess the next question would be, since you started working with Project Drawdown and looking at a very broad array of climate solutions in different industries, as well as social issues, uh, farming is, and different types of farming are very high up on those lists. But there are other things as well. And sometimes it's easy to just narrow it down to like, yeah, we need to fix the farming system and then we will solve the world's problems. But this broader understanding of the fact that there are other priorities happening in other places and there are more urgent solutions that need to take place so that they get to a level of comfort or privilege that dealing with uh, ecological issues becomes a possibility. You know, you have to start from these lower necessities as you build up to higher actualization. Um, in understanding this, where are some other things that can kind of be paired with land management practices for a better result overall? Mm. That is a great question. Um, well, I think one of the um, drawdown is, has a team working right now, and I think should have some time out, maybe maybe even this year, a whole suite of solutions around oceans. There's a whole bunch of things that can be happening that are happening and and can increasingly happen in oceans that that are big. A lot of our food comes from the ocean, um, less and less all the time in terms of fish as a percentage of how much we eat fish we eat, but still quite a few, you know, algae, you know, um, and um, uh, for it to become a bigger part of human diet, for it to become a bigger, um, like a feedstock for various kinds of industrial processes for bioplastic and chemicals and things like that. And of course, as a livestock feed. So what happens in the oceans really matters a lot. There's a whole set of things there. And then there's the land restoration, the ecosystem restoration work, um, which is really critical as well. And I mean, you've worked in the restoration camps, right? That it has such an impact on the farmland surrounding it in terms of if there's enough of it actually can impact cloud formation and rainfall and stuff, but it impacts also water quality and erosion, you know, farther down in the watershed and all that and biodiversity and pollinators and all these other things that are very much related to agriculture in a very real way. And I think figuring out that kind of mosaic for any landscape, what parts of this landscape should be restored, which parts should be in agriculture, which should be a sort of a hybrid fusion of those two things. Um, 
becomes a really interesting question. The um, farms in Colombia who've been doing this intensive silvopasture, cattle grazing is a huge part of life in Colombia. It's one of their biggest industries. And um, they found that uh, the farmers who adopt this intensive silvopasture are able to take sometimes half of their pasture and reforest it because they're producing as much on half the land as they were on the whole thing before. Um, so that adds another whole carbon impact, but also all the other benefits of timber and fruits and nuts and all the other kinds of things that can be produced on that land. Sometimes it's reforestation, sometimes it's productive reforestation or some kind of agroforestry. Um, so um, I would say that's really key. And then there's a bunch of things in the so there's the oceans, there's the kind of other land stuff, wetland restoration and care and prote protection of wetlands and stuff where most of our, so much of our carbon on land is actually in the wetlands. So preserving and maintaining and restoring those is really key. Then, then I would say the food system, the sort of supply chain is the other place where, um, um, improvements in transportation and processing and refrigeration and reduction of waste all the way up to that consumer point are really key. Uh, and then reduction of waste and changing of diet at the consumer level is really big as well. Um, um, so those to me are the three things that really fit together best. I mean, all the other pieces of drawdown are important, the buildings and transport and electricity mostly especially you know power generation but all these other things are really are really essential um but to me that sort of the, the the food supply the supply chain and demand and then the terrestrial and wetland ecosystems and the oceans are really um they're so they're so agriculture adjacent that they really have to be thought about together in some places like mangroves where you really have the, the coming together of those two places are really key places with really key ecosystems with very high carbon sequestration that have been heavily, heavily degraded and deforested. Um, and there are some really interesting models of aquaforestry that restore mangroves with productive capacity of food. So I'm especially interested in those kinds of restoration that don't necessarily remove all food production potential from, from, um, from a piece of land like, great, we need to restore peatlands, but it doesn't always have to be done with pure forest restoration. They, there are all different kinds of ways people have found to restore peatlands with a food production or some other kind of product coming out of them that makes it economically viable for the people whose land it is to stay afloat, you know, or to move to move forward in their lives. So, um, because if you if you're just taking away people's livelihood, you need that kind of just transition component in there, or else it's not going to stick very well. Or else you're just causing more human suffering anyway, which is not what not what the goal is. I think. Yeah. No, ultimately that's probably not it. Um, <laughs> so. It, it really kind of comes down to something that has been very much a theme of this podcast for five seasons now. And I've talked to so many people and it really boils down to like, there are so many ways to participate in this. By no means are we just talking about, this is only something that farmers can do and they're solely responsible right. for restoring the landscapes. I mean, from the 
the markets themselves, from the supply chains, from the energy production, all of those things that you mentioned, there's an opportunity for everybody to take an active role in whatever their specialty is, whatever their skill set is, whatever their passion is, and play their part in improving whatever it is that they have access to and participate in. And uh, with that said, we're just about out of time here. Eric, can you tell our audience where they can find more of their work and get in touch with you? Sure. Let's see. Um, they can, um, Perennial Solutions is one of my, is sort of my consulty website that's about to pick up. Uh, and um, the Carbon Farming Solution is where I have the carbon farming stuff. I have a perennialagriculture.institute is a new NGO that I've got going. Um, and actually, I will be launching a Patreon campaign any day now to um, provide some support for some of the writing I'm doing that I think is really important, but nobody seems to want to, I haven't found the right home for yet. So that might be um, the, way to, the way to do that. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, I'll put links to all of those things. I'll have you send them to me and put them in the show notes for this Great. episode. And Eric, man, it was a real pleasure to finally get to talk to you in person like this. Well, over the internet, but still. And I really look forward to staying in touch and continuing to learn from all of these wonderful things that you're helping to move forward. Thanks so much for your time. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me and keep up all the great work over there. There you have it. Thanks again to Eric for taking the time to share his knowledge and perspective. You can find all the links that Eric mentioned in the show notes for this episode on regenerativeskills.com. Now remember that these episodes are just the start of the conversations that continue on the Discord server. You can always sign up for free by clicking the link on our homepage or through the links on our Instagram account. The questions that we'll be exploring around this topic this week are, of all of the regenerative actions that you could take or invest in, which do you believe contributes most to reversing climate change on a global scale? And likewise, which do you think are the most important to regeneration of your immediate community or even your household? Now, are those actions or investments the same? Or are they different at different scales? I also want to give a quick shout out to three of our members, Madeline, Amber, and Bobby, for this last week's debate about the real efficacy of regenerative agriculture and dietary decisions that are appropriate to your bioregion. This was one of the coolest chats that we've ever had, and just knowing that this show is attracting such intelligent and well-thought-out discussions makes my work really worthwhile. I'm really looking forward to talking about this week's topics with you on the Discord. Now that's our show this week. Remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Magic. <laughs>